and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you can help us out at the podcast. So first of all, welcome back. It's the new year and hope you all had a great 2018 Hope you came back refreshed and enjoyed some time with your family around the holidays and just grateful to have you here as we launch season three of the podcast. And if you're new or this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. We hope to unpack intentional gems for how people set their mind for performance. And that is the goal and the vision of the show. And so we talk with all kinds of performers. And today's guest is actually someone who we have not talked to before. We've never talked to somebody that does what he does, but we have talked to athletes, actors, activists, military professionals. We've talked to anybody who is really being intentional with how they're living their life and really being intentional with how they set their mind at their craft we want to talk to. So I'm a big fan of diversity of thought and learning from people from all kinds of walks of life. And so hopefully this podcast will provide diversity of thought, but also allow you to distill down how you want to set your mind to perform at your best. And if you like this episode or like any of our previous episodes, we'd appreciate if you go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can give as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month to the show. We appreciate everybody who gave in 2018, and hopefully you will feel inspired to do so in 2019. So welcome, and I'm so excited to share today's guest with you. I have never spoken to an astronaut up until today. So this is a really cool conversation with Chris Cassidy. And Chris was connected to me from Jeff Gum. And Jeff is a former guest on the podcast. Jeff was a Navy SEAL. And when I asked Jeff, hey, do you have anyone that you recommend that I chat with? He said, you got to talk with Chris. And so Chris was also a Navy SEAL before he became an astronaut. And before he was a Navy SEAL, he also went to the Naval Academy. And before that, he played a bunch of sports in high school and in 
including basketball. So we have plenty to talk about in this hour conversation. To be honest, it could have been about two hours, three hours. There was more that I would have loved to get to with Chris, but as you can imagine, he's a busy guy. And so I'm going to give you a little background on his awards and the honors that he has gotten because you're going to learn real quick from Chris that he's not somebody who's very boastful. He talks in pretty simplistic terms, even though if you look at his resume and his career, it's anything but basic or simple. So Chris was an honor graduate of basic underwater demolition with the SEAL Buds Class 192. And he received a bronze star for his work leading a nine-day operation at the Zarwar Keeley Cave Complex on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. He's been a guest speaker at the U.S. Naval Academy Combat Leadership Seminar. And you're going to hear from Chris that the Naval Academy experience for him was really a baseline and a foundation for his leadership once he became a SEAL team member and also as an astronaut. And he also, in 2003 and 2004, was awarded a second Bronze Star for Combat Leadership Service in Afghanistan. He was the recipient of the NASA Exceptional Achievement Medal. He has been the finisher in the Ironman World Championship Triathlon, which we don't get into in this conversation either. So he has done a lot in his 48 years being on this planet, and he seemingly wants to do more work on other planets, and we will talk about what it means to potentially get to Mars in his lifetime. And so Chris is somebody who is pretty clear on how he sees the world. He sees things very much as doing the right thing and leadership about doing the right thing and the value of preparation and the value of leading and serving other people. So Chris is a great human, and I enjoyed this conversation, and I know you will too. So without further ado, I'm so excited to share with you Chris Cassidy. Chris, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Excited to have you on. And what I'd love to start is get a sense of what your childhood was like. What was life like for you as a kid? Uh, just unpack that for me a little bit. Yeah, totally normal. Totally normal childhood. I, I, was, uh, I was into sports. Uh, grew up in New England. In, in Maine, actually. Maine doesn't have any professional sports teams. So all the Boston, New England teams, the Patriots, the Celtics, the Red Sox, the Bruins, in uh, whatever season it was, was my favorite sport. Uh, played hockey, played football, played basketball, played baseball. Uh, and so my life sort of centered around that. And the friends, the, my core group of friends were folks that were kids that were doing the, that same stuff. And uh, I grew up just in a small town on the coast, southern coast of, of Maine. Uh, my dad owned a restaurant that kind of struggled a little bit and he shifted careers after that kind of didn't work out so well. And uh, just a normal childhood. I had one younger brother and the two of us, whenever we went on a trip, we always had some kind of ball with us, a football usually or whatever. And uh, we'd make our fun wherever we were. So uh, that kind of was childhood it, in, into high school. Again, academics and, and sports and friends were just the, kind of the base of my stuff. I never thought about uh, the military, I never thought about it. NASA, that was just not even on my radar screen. I was really going through early part of high school and then kind of later in high school when you realize, hey, there's you got to do something after you graduate high school and what is that something? That's when I kind of looked into the path to the Naval Academy a little bit. 
what were you thinking about in high school? Just playing, having fun? Or was there a dream job as a kid? Any, any of that sort of stuff? You know, um, I think if, if I really on, am honest with you, I, I don't think I had any huge dreams. Um, and up until probably sophomore year in high school. And then is, I think it was the latter part of my sophomore year when I saw uh, either a Army Navy game on football, I think it was, uh, on, the, on TV, when I watched the smart looking um, both Army and Navy uniforms walking in, marching onto the stadium, and the aura that was there, and the tradition, and just the cool. And then they have these little 30 second TV commercial spots on each school. And I, I, it, I was just drawn to it. I thought, wow, that's pretty neat. And I looked it up uh, pre internet days, you know, so looking through the book in the guidance counselor's office at, at the, the and saw the pictures of Annapolis, and I really, really liked it. And I think I kind of glommed on to that as a goal. I'm more of, I want to go to that college, not so much I want to be in the Navy, because I didn't, at a young 16, 17-year-old, I didn't process really well that after you go to Naval Academy, you're, you're obligated to now be in the Navy and serve in some capacity. I just want to go to that super cool college, and down in the little letters it said it's free to go there, and that was pretty nice. Uh, so what? that sort of that sort of got my my attention. So dad dad owned a restaurant, mom around, and 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 yeah. what were the what what were the values that they passed down to you uh, from childhood? Uh, shovel snow, mow the dry, mow the yard, rake the leaves, uh, all that stuff. Um, we had again the the restaurant didn't work out too well. So when I was in fifth grade, I think is when the my dad's restaurant kind of kind of went. And, and we moved to a different town and I think money was tight. I didn't, I was sort of unaware that money was super tight. We were a close knit family of four and we did stuff. I do remember in the fall, uh, every weekend chopping firewood and uh, that was our heat was wood stove, which is not uncommon in New England, you know, other parts of the country maybe. But when I was in the eighties, it was not uncommon that people had a whole bunch of firewood to heat their house through the winter. So just kind of normal chores, normal family values, uh, do the right thing, treat, treat others the way you want to be treated. Not super, not really religious. My mother, my father was from a Catholic family. My mother was from a Christian family. Uh, as a result, we kind of did a little bit of church in each one, but nothing really significant. But the core of it was just kind of treat others well and, and be a good person, work hard. Uh, and that's kind of where I'm, I am today. And when you go and say to mom and dad, hey, I want to uh, go to the Naval Academy for college, what was their reaction? Oh, I think they were, they were excited and happy because uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's a prestigious school. And they were proud that if I got in, they were proud of me. And, and also um, the burden of not having to figure out how to pay for their son to go to school, I think, was nice for them. My younger brother, uh, he went to a private high school. He was, he was super smart. Um, and his freshman year, he moved away from our house and went uh, lived at the school called Phillips Exert Academy in New Hampshire. And, uh, and so they were having to figure out how to pay that. And he got some scholarships and things. But I knew that money would be tight. So they were pretty happy that I uh, was motivated to go to Annapolis. Are you more like mom, more like dad, and, and how so? Uh, I think 
uh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, probably more, I'm more like my dad in the way I, I process things and think about stuff. Um, maybe more like my, I don't know. I don't know, mom, are you listening? Uh, <laughs> I'm not really sure. That's a good question. I'm more like my brother, actually. My brother and I are kind of two peas in the pod, and, and, and we uh, are very similar, very close to this day. And you said your younger brother was super smart in high school, and you have to be super smart to get into the Naval Academy. And I don't know, we, I've talked, I've had other people on the podcast who went to the Naval Academy. So we've, we've talked about how hard it is to get in and what the uh, hoops you got to jump through. Um, talk about being at the Naval Academy and what that was like for you coming from Maine and then being at the Naval Academy, because I know the Naval Academy has diversity of people and why they're there and the reasons that they're there is different. What was it like for you actually being there? Yeah. So for me, I had a slight advantage in that, and I didn't know it was an advantage at the time, but when I was in high school, um, it's sort of a long story, but my application um, didn't make it to the Naval Academy on time. You applied for your congressman, and there was a mix-up. And as a result, I was uh, admitted to Naval Academy Prep School, which is one-year program in Newport, Rhode Island. And at the time, I thought, oh, this is a bummer. I, I didn't get in directly. I got another. I got to waste a year. Uh, but I went to the Navy prep. You take the same courses you take your freshman year. You take there. You learn all the military stuff, and you have this core group of 200, 250 friends that you do this with as 18-year-olds, and now you move on. It's largely used. The prep schools for the service academies are largely used like a red shirt recruiting year concept uh, at, a, at a normal big, at big school. I was not a recruited athlete. I had I got in there, I was there for this other reason, but um, I did play basketball at, at prep school. So as a result, I entered my freshman year, my plea year at the Naval Academy with this, I've already taken all the courses. I had all the friends, I had the military bearing. So freshman year, plea year was not very difficult for me. I, I uh, I don't want to say breeze through it because it may make it challenging for whoever you are. They can up, ratchet up the intensity to meet where your, your level is. Um, but I was not super stressed about it. It was just a long year. And uh, and the people that I went through that big year with are still my closest friends to this, to this day. Uh, but as a result, I, I, I was really successful freshman year. And that sort of set me up for positions of leadership and other things that um, that I was able to take, cap, take advantage of as the other three years. What did you learn? What did you learn at the academy? What was the biggest takeaway? I think time management was one of the, the largest things. Um, and uh, something that is also very useful here in my role at NASA, that probably the seeds of it were planted at the Naval Academy, is flowing between leadership and followership. You know, it's, it's one thing if a person's a natural leader and they always want to be the leader, but every, every one of us is going to be a follower at some point. And you have to know, or successful people, in my opinion, know when to kind of throttle back their natural leadership tendencies and, and let the other people grow, let the other people be leaders. Uh, and, and you can be, come across as kind of overbearing and a jerk if you're always having to insert yourself as, as, as the leader of the pack. So... At the Naval Academy, you kind of flow through this peer leader, subordinate to the upper class, leader to the 
people beneath you in your in your squad or your company and and so that was where i learned to have this um, flowing leadership style it's interesting i had on someone else who works in the nonprofit sector now who went through the naval academy and went into the special forces and he talked about leadership being you know bi-directional and that great leaders also will open themselves up to be led and that oftentimes we think of leadership just as I'm the one doing the leading and I don't need to ask for help and I'm going to do it myself. But his thought, and I wonder listening to you talk, if there's an element of this in the Naval Academy that you learn is a great leader also knows when to be led uh, and the value of that and how that can serve a team. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and part of that also is mentoring future leaders. And that's the, the Naval Academy is a laboratory for leadership, basically. It's a university and you take academic stuff and you graduate with your academic degree. But, and wrapped, wrapped all around that is the leadership curriculum and the, and the uh, crucible of leadership that all service academies are. And um, in that capacity, we're, as we mature in our third and fourth years, we're creating training the younger folks to be leaders and we are the mentors for them. And so that, and that mentorship aspect of leadership is when you allow them to bloom into it. Allow, as a senior, you allow the junior to kind of step up and take more, more role. And, and just like here at NASA on a space uh, crew, I've been an astronaut now for 14 years. And, and my first mission, I was all learn, learning everything. My second mission, um, I kind of flowed in and out of leadership depending on where I was in this next mission. That I'll launch next year, I'll be more in the mentoring, more senior capacity. And it'd be, it's my job, I think of it as to the, the first time flyers on my crew to bring them along and, and make them the future chief astronauts of our, of our um, office. I'm curious, what do you know now that you didn't know back then? If you could go back to a 22-year-old version of yourself, what do you know now about leadership that you didn't know back then? Yeah, um, Good question. I think that there's, I, I know now that there's value to learn in observing and working for poor leaders. Back then, I think I was just frustrated, like, oh, that guy's a jerk. I, I don't even want to pay attention to that person. Um, uh, but through the years, both in my time in the SEAL teams and now, I'm not saying I'm surrounded by bad leaders, but we all experience them periodically in our, in our careers. And uh, and there's real true lessons to be learned from those people on how to not be. Awesome. And SEAL teams, you mentioned, uh, not everybody from the Naval Academy goes into the SEAL teams. There's optionality when you graduate from the Academy. What drew you to the SEAL teams? Um, another good question, because when I was at the Navy prep school, I had no idea that this community of SEALs existed. There was... Um, maybe one or two books of, on Vietnam era seals that were kind of obscure and not really um, well known in bookstores. Contrast that today where there's books, seal books everywhere you look, um, on Amazon, in the bookstores, wherever, they're all over the place. Uh, so seal, seals were not that much in, in the people's mind. And when I got to the Naval Academy, I learned that there was a 5.30 in the morning, not my freshman year, because you've got your own worries there, but my sophomore year, I learned that there's this 5.30 in the morning 
exercise kind of class that the on-staff SEAL officer and, and uh, chief petty officer eat a couple times a week would have. They'd conduct this 530 to I don't know, 7 or something in the morning. And it was optional. You could go and you could do it. And, and I went and I just kind of got hooked on it. It was I liked exercising and they were motivating people. It wasn't a beat down kind of thing. It was just a, hey, let's go. We were going to do a pull-up, push-up, run, just some fun competitive games that are fitness related. And I just really liked it. And I was motivated and drawn to their personalities. And in that process, learned that, oh, there's this guy, it's called SEALs, and they, they have this interesting mission and, and their training is really hard. And I thought, wow, that'd be really neat to be part of that. And I, that's what sort of uh, led me into the SEAL team. You mentioned the word competitive. And in the sports world, when a team is looking to draft a player or sign a free agent or trade for a player, competitiveness is a quality that almost is a baseline. It's almost, it's pretty hard in the sports world to be successful if you don't have a, com- a competitive spirit. I'm curious for you though, because you have this background in sports in high school, and then you're, you said, I, I like the competitiveness of waking up early and seeing how many pull-ups and push-ups we do. And then the SEAL training buds is extremely competitive. And I'm curious how that all plays against being an astronaut and what it's like to be an astronaut. Do you think about being an astronaut in the same competitive lens or do you think about it differently? A little different, a little different. We, we, um, we, I think competition pushes people. Um, and if you just get on a treadmill, I mean, a, a spin bike all by yourself and you go and you, you rotate the pedals, you're not really going to push yourself. But if there's an instructor yelling at you, or if you're taking one of these new online programs where you see the board on the right-hand side of all the others and, and you go, ah, I can get that person. That nature, that natural competition kind of go, brings out the, the, the best of you. So I think that's healthy. But what we don't want on our space crews is people thinking that they need to one-up each other because there's no place for that in a small, tight-knit cockpit of four or seven on the shuttle. Uh, you all need to be encouraging each other, and the competition needs, needs to be more nurturing and uh, uh, teamwork-oriented. So. I, there's been a few astronauts, not so much now, I think more in the shuttle era, where competition amongst, I can I can have better performance, landing performance numbers or whatever than some other guy, maybe drew out a little bit of a negative side of the competition, but I don't see that any, any recently. I don't know if I'm answering your question. But, uh, yeah, you are. And there's two elements that I would pull on. One, you hit the nail on the head. There's actually research that backs up. If you're cycling and there's somebody in front of you that is faster, that we go faster. So there is a innate element to human beings of competition and the ability to motivate through competition. And then the second part, which is really interesting, is what is competition? And the origins of the word compete come from, I think it's Greek, and it means to strive with. And so I think somewhere along the way, we, we decided that competition was just one versus one or a team versus a team. But if you think about whenever we have our best performances, it usually involves competition. It usually involves that other person or that other team. They bring out the best in us. And actually, the flow state, which is the optimal state for human performance, requires somebody to challenge you. 
um, or to be challenged in some capacity. So that's at least how I think about competition. Um, but, but I would love to go into, into SEAL training with you and BUDS. And uh, so difficult, challenging, hard. Um, what, was, what was that training like for you? Yeah, it's all of the above. And, um, and you know, people often have this stereotypical view of what is, if you've never met a SEAL guy before, uh, and I say guy because it's all guys, but I believe too that as a side note, I believe there will be women in the SEAL teams very, very soon. Um, but you have this stereotypical view of what they look like. And you show up on day one of your SEAL class and you've got all kinds of different body body shapes and sizes from the big, huge former college lineman to a skinny guy that's a cross-country runner, uh, foreign nationals, all different uh, ethnicities. And it's really interesting. And you, if you try to predict who's going to be there standing on graduation day, you're going to be wrong. And you just have no idea. And that's because the true nature of the success is, is in the head. It's mental. And it's a large degree physical, but everybody's got the capacity to do the physical stuff. They don't expect you to do on day one what they expect you to do physically on graduation day. It ramp, they ramp you up fast. The, the slope of that ramp up is pretty steep. But nonetheless, it's a ramp up and, uh, and your body gets there when, when you need, we need, need to get there. So for me personally, I was naturally a decent runner. And, uh, and you spend a lot of time running. And if, if you are a slow runner, they always have this thing called the goon squad. Maybe you've heard of it. If the time to complete a four mile run is whatever the time is, everybody that finishes before that gets to sit off the side, get a drink of water, stretch out for those handful of minutes until the rest of the class comes through the finish line. Everybody after that time, say it's, I don't even know, I can't remember, 40 minutes or something. And because you're running in the sand with boots on, they just make a turn and go right into the water and, and sit in the waves and, and enjoy this nice, chilly Southern California water and waves until the instructors decide that they're done. Uh, and so I never had to do that. I was always had the benefit of kind of finishing towards the top of the run. And, uh, and I was, I was uh, an officer in a SEAL uh, Bud's class is mixed of officer enlisted. You're all in one class. So they're natural breakouts of, uh, of these little uh, boat crews. For instance, my class was, we started with 120 people and they're eight man boat crews. So I can't do the math, but eight into 120, that number of different boat crews and each one has the leader of the boat crew. But for me personally, hell week or hell week for everybody is the week five of, of a six month program. I entered into week five. I was kind of the second or third senior um, person in the class. And on Wednesday, Tuesday night or Wednesday morning of Hell Week, Hell Week goes Sunday to Friday. So about midway through the week, the class leader got medically hurt and, and taken out of the class. And so pitch dark, I think like 3 a.m. Tuesday night into Wednesday morning, the, the lead instructor goes, Cassidy, get over here. And I run over there and uh, kind of feel sorry for myself. It's cold, it's dark, and, and we haven't even got 50% of the way through the week yet. And he goes, 
and he says, uh, you're now the class leader. Get your shit together and, and get your class uh, it, in the next, the next evolution, the next musters in five minutes, and you need boats and paddles and life jackets. Uh, here's me like, oh, okay. So that was the hardest part for me was this instantly thrown into the leader of the group um, during, in the middle of Hell Week, which is the most difficult week in the whole entire program. Um, and that was a huge learning curve for me that uh, in terms of the biggest thing I learned was delegation. There's no way you can do it all yourself and you got to delegate, you got to trust your people, you got to divide up the task and together as a group, we, you conquer Hell Week. Uh, and then the rest of the time was just a grind to get through all the other evolutions. I could keep going on, but let, why don't you ask me questions that you want to go through? Yeah, I'm just curious, what did it feel like in that moment where you now have the weight of leading this team on you? If you could go into the body rather than the mind and actually express, what does that feel like to go through that in that moment? I, I had two feelings. Like my, the, the class leader was my good friend and Naval Academy classmate, uh, and he was hurt. And I, so my instantly thought, oh man, is, is he okay? Is he? And they told me that it was just uh, a problem that will heal up and he'll stay in training and, and, he, and he graduated in a subsequent class. So, but then I, I, it was like my own personal aches and pains and, oh, my heel is killing me, just kind of went away. In your brain, it's interesting how your brain can kind of shift from focusing on you and this feeling sorry for yourself sort of state. And, and I remember distinctly like, oh, I got all those guys to worry about now and all that equipment. And those evil group of mean instructors over there are going to be yelling at me if the whole class is not uh, performing. So it instantly focused the shift away from myself to the group. And when you say that you feel like BUDS is mostly psychological, what did you do psychologically to make sure that you were uh, able to get through it? Nothing. I just was me, and uh, I don't think there was any preparation I could have done. Um, I just entered the day, entered day one and did day one. And uh, the best advice I got going into uh, going into Hell Week, for, uh, specifically, but it applied to the whole course, was just just go meal to meal. So what does that mean? It means you've just left breakfast, and it's a horrible, horrendous evolution with logs and you, you you can't hardly deal with it but it's gonna they're gonna let you eat lunch so that thing will end whether it's in one hour or two hours or five minutes it's going to finish and then you're going to move on to the next thing and eventually you're going to be eating eating sitting in a chow hall eating lunch so just make it meal to meal if you think about on sunday night friday morning or friday afternoon you're totally screwed you have to just think about some very small milestone. And for me, that was getting to the next meal. And did the Academy train you at all for that? Or was it completely different training uh, as far as, and, and I don't know the answer to this. Like you said, 120 guys, what percentage of those guys are Academy guys? Cause most of the seals I've met are not Academy guys, but I don't have any data on that. Right. In my year, 
we graduated, uh, uh, of my graduation year, 16 of us um, went into the SEAL teams. We did not all enter into the same BUDS class. Um, I think maybe a handful, four or five, went in immediately to, they skipped any vacation from graduation and went right to a, a BUDS class. The bulk of us, maybe 10 of us, 11, 12, something like that, 10, 10 went um, into the next class. So of 120, I think there were 10 of us that were Naval Academy officers. We had one or two other officers from different universities, ROTC or whatever, and the rest of the class was en en enlisted sailors. Um, of those 120 people, 17 of us were in the graduation picture at the end. If you look at our graduation picture, there's like 38 folks in it. And the, the other group, besides the original 17, were people who were hurt in previous classes, stepped aside from training until their knee healed up or whatever their case was, and then they came back into our class. And the 17 people, what qualities do you think they had that allowed them to get through it that maybe the other 103 didn't? Um, one, which is not a quality that you can prepare for, is we were, those of us were just lucky enough not to get hurt. Kind of like a football player making it through a season without any injury. You know, you're, you're, any given play, any given run, any given obstacle course, your hand could slip and, and you get hurt. So we were fortunate not to get hurt. But the, the rest of us, um, I, I think, when you take the medical aspect aside, it's this mental thing of not quitting and knowing, putting things in perspective, knowing the instructors can't punish you forever. And that concept that I previously talked about of just having short little milestones, meal to meal, or if it's really super heinous and hard, getting to lunch seems unbearable. Just like one more push-up. I can do, I can always do one more push-up. That's, you know, how hard is one push-up? So, um, that concept of tiny little milestones and kind of moving the distance to that milestone on a yo-yo as the difficulty changed. And then what was it like for you actually going over and serving and being in enemy lines and uh, behind enemy lines and that experience? So that was interesting too, because uh, I, I spent my first four years in the SEAL teams driving underwater vehicles, which I love. They're called SEAL Delivery Vehicles, SDVs. Fantastic mission and uh, super, super cool. And then I went to graduate school for two years. And then I moved to SEAL Team 3 out in San Diego. So it's been uh, a while, that two years of, of acad academia, and it's been a little while since I've been an operational SEAL. So there was about a, a year and a half of training before we were deployed to go to um, Afghanistan. Coincidentally, we were normally, that our, our platoon at SEAL Team 3 was scheduled to deploy around Thanksgiving of 2001, and then September 11th happened, and we were the most, the next ready-to-go group of guys, uh, so we packed our stuff and, and disappeared and, and flew off to Afghanistan shortly, shortly thereafter. So for me, I was a SEAL platoon commander uh, of a group of SEALs. Our area of responsibility was the Persian Gulf. We didn't know where we were going to land. Um, we ultimately landed in Kandahar really early in the, in the conflict and, um, 
every day was some new thing that I hadn't learned before. But there was this one funny story. It, it's it's about a it's a quick story, but it's worth it. Um, we were tasked with this mission. We had about 24 hours, 40, 36 hours to plan this mission. We're in the planning tent. We're getting it all together. We have this briefing with um, uh, our boss, who was a, also a very senior SEAL, mean-looking guy with this G.I. Joe-looking scar on his face. And uh, we, I give the briefing, and he's notorious for just chewing up the briefers and spitting them out. And I had all the answers. We were really prepared, felt really confident. And he had just a few easy questions for me. And then he goes, okay, go do the mission. Now I look at my watch, it was like a half hour until you gotta be on the helicopter. I realized I hadn't really drank water. I hadn't gone to the bathroom in the last like five or six hours. So I need to do that basic stuff in the next 30 minutes before I get on the helicopter. Leave the briefing tent, it's pitch dark uh, in the airfield of Kandahar. The bathroom at the time was like this three sheets of plywood with the open face looking out at the runway and a trench dug in the ground with um, four by four posts, you know, like wooden posts that you see a deck built out of and three tires suspended over those four by four posts. So I come around the corner and go to go, my little headlight illuminates and it lights up the three spots and who's sitting on the middle tire was the guy I just briefed, this mean old, cranky pants guy and he's sitting on the middle tire doing the same thing that I'm about to do and I'm thinking oh man 26 minutes till I got to be on the helicopter I have no option here but hey sir can I join you yeah Matt Cassidy come on in so drop my trousers our knees are kind of awkwardly touching each other and there's like a mostly used roll of toilet paper on the on the floor between our feet and it's all dusty and dirty and uh, and I thought, well, this is really weird. And neither one of us were being very productive at the task at hand. And all of a sudden, he looks at me and says, hey, you know what I expect of you? And I was kind of like, uh, not really sure where he's going with this. I expect you to make good decisions, do the right thing, and bring the guys home. And that was like a lightning rod for me. Like all of, I realized that all of my training and preparation Underwater vehicles, grad school, the, the training with the platoon before that, all that had enabled me to be in that position to do that, to be entrusted with uh, his, with the responsibility. The only reason I was getting a paycheck from the United States government that day was to be a leader and to make the right decisions and do the right thing. Um, and that was really, really eye-opening for me. Uh, so Chris, I'd love to share a framework that I use that has been really helpful for me, which is your mindset and preparation should actually be different than your mindset and performance. And what I mean by that is humble in preparation, but then confident in performance for athletes, even arrogant in performance, uh, you know, really do a lot of analysis and preparation, but then use your instincts in performance, uh, be perfectionist in preparation, but then be adaptable in performance. So I've realized that there is this framework and I could keep going, but there are these binaries that exist. And what we need in preparation is often different than what we need in the moment. And you even talked about meal to meal, meal to meal, meal to meal. That's very present in thinking and 
present thinking is huge in performance, but a lot of times people will visualize in preparation and that can be massively useful. So I'd love for you to unpack that either as a SEAL or as an astronaut and how you think about preparation, how you think about performance. Well, you, you said the, the mental image part, and that is exactly the technique that I use. Um, in the SEAL teams, I would, and as a group, we would do this. We, we had a, we called it sand table. You build like a mini mock-up of your area and, and you verbalize uh, where you're going to be. Helicopter lands here, stick one comes off. I go here and in your mind, you're picturing, okay, I should round this corner. I'm going to see the house in front of me or whatever the case is. Um, when we're doing a spacewalk, before every spacewalk, we analyze the procedures and we rehearse it in the pool, hopefully, if we have time. Um, and then the days before it, we'll sit inside the space station and I'll just sit there all by myself in my uh, crew quarters, close my eyes and picture the handrails that I'm going to grab. Okay, now I'm going to approach the piece of equipment. There should be bolts here and electrical cables here. Uh, watch out because in training, I always grab the wrong one or they three things look the same, make sure it's the right one. You know, all of those little details go over and over and over and mentally picture it. And the very first time I ever remember doing that, I was a, a little kid playing first base in Little League. And I remember thinking to myself, there's a guy on third base. I remember thinking to myself, if the ball is hit to me, I'm going to get it, tag the bag and throw the guy out at home. And I never had heard, nobody had ever told me about mental imaging, but I remember being, I don't know how old you're in Little League, 10, 12, something like that. Yeah. I remember thinking that overhead, ball to me, tack the bag, home plate, ball to me, tack the bag, home plate. Sure enough, the ball came to me without even thinking about it. I hit the bag, threw the guy out at home plate, double play, and the coach was all happy. And I thought, oh, I just did what I practiced in my head like five times before the ball came to me. So I totally agree with you that mental preparation. Yeah, people don't realize what you're talking about is visualization. You're also talking about self-talk, the dialogue that you have with yourself. And then I'm curious, do you use any breathing techniques, uh, any meditative techniques? And did you use it in the teams or have you used it as an astronaut? Any breathing skills? I, I don't. I, I, I'm not saying it's not, a, it's not for me or, or it's not effective. I just have never practiced it. I'd be curious to, to learn about it. What I do do on a spacewalk, it's very common since you're you can see the background behind me. Um, imagine that you have that view and it's just you in your spacesuit looking down at Earth. And it really feels like you're gonna fall. And so uh, maybe we can throw a spacewalk picture in there, uh, Kim. But I, I, there's a tendency to grab on really tight with the handrails. And so what I do is wiggle my toes and wiggling your toes just has this natural thing of relaxing every muscle in your body because you can't wiggle your toes if you're all stiff. So every probably half hour or so, I tell myself, wiggle your toes, wiggle your toes, just relax. You, you, and when you're relaxed, you're using less oxygen, you're using less energy, and that's all important resources for us on a spacewalk. How do you set your mind uh, for space? What are you trying, how are you trying to show up when you're, when you're getting up there, what, what do you want to be from a mindset standpoint? Well, there's, there's different um, phases of flight, we call them. So it's a different mindset when you're walking out of the van to the launch pad and you look up and you see your rocket to sitting in the rocket on 
and the moment they light the engines, that eight and a half, nine minute ride to space is a whole different mindset. And then you're, when we go to the space station, we live there for six months, you can't keep up launch day intensity for six months. You just can't do it. It's a sprinter versus marathon kind of analogy. You have to kind of settle into a rhythm and, and execute your days. But on launch day, it is all business and you're focused, laser focused attention on your particular tasks and the data you're supposed to watch um, for that 10 minute ride. Why, why have you gone toward these challenges? So, you know, the SEALs, I heard you say, hey, I'd like to wake up at 5.30 and uh, just do exercises. And then I started to learn more about the SEALs and it's this challenging training and what they do. You're an astronaut. These are not, I understand that your upbringing, you described it as uh, just do the right thing and to be a person of values. But what's, what's driving you? Why, why do you do what you do? It's funny, you're asking me this. I had a really good friend from the Naval Academy prep school. We were 18-year-old guys together, went to the Naval Academy together. We haven't really seen each other much in the last uh, 25 years, but he was at my house for dinner two nights ago. And after dinner, we're just sitting around talking. He asked me this exact same question. What drives you? What motivates you? Why are you one of three people that have ever been in the SEAL teams and gone to NASA? and I don't really have like an aha answer for you. It's just when I was a young guy, as I described, a young guy at the Nail Academy, and I saw these motivating people that I thought would be cool to be like, that's how I got in the SEAL teams. Once I was in the SEAL teams, I learned about the, my predecessor, Bill Shepard, who was about to launch on the space to, to be the first commander of the space station. And I thought, wow, that'd be super cool. If I could do that, that would be awesome. I don't have to do it because I like my job, what I'm currently doing. And so I learned about how do you apply to be an astronaut? Where, where, what's the process? And now I've been here for 14 years and I, I, maybe I'm getting a little bit of that itch. Like, okay, what am I going to do next? Am I going to just uh, um, get a sprinter van and drive around the country and live van life? I don't know. But uh I've always wanted to be a, a referee, a basketball referee. I think that would be fun to be an NCAA basketball rep. Uh, I don't know what motivates me. I'm dancing around your, answer, your question because I have no really answer. A basketball referee, what's appealing about that for you? Uh, I love the sport, and it's a it's a, be a fun way to stay engaged with the sport. I always um, – I did – I refereed in high school. In, when I was in high school, I refereed on, you know, in, in college too. I refereed like recreation leagues and whatnot. I just really enjoyed it. I liked, uh, I liked the, the quick decision. Is that a foul or not? Did the guy have his feet planted as an offensive foul? You know, that kind of thing. It just was fun for me. I, you screw it up and you get yelled at and whatnot, but I just enjoyed it. I mean, maybe, maybe it's the competition aspect with yourself. Get the right call or not. How do you think about emotion and how do emotions impact you? And I think about a referee and a referee's job, to your point, they get yelled at, they get screamed at. How can they still do the job even when they're being judged and evaluated on every single play? And I'm just thinking about you and what's your framework and how you handle emotion. Yeah. Um, People sometimes say the better astronauts are the ones with short-term memory. You know, in other words, if you just made a mistake, there's 
nothing more important than what you're doing right now. In other words, that thing behind you is behind you. You've got to just forget about it and move forward. That applies to everything, right? So this certainly applies to being a referee. If, if you feel like, oh, God, I think I screwed that up. I, I, I the coach, What the coach is yelling at me for, maybe I kind of agree with him. Uh, you got to just forget it. Move on because it, it's past. You can't undo it. And I think that's a little bit my personality. Um, just you have a set of data, and this is more on the astronaut side of things. you got information. you got data. you got circumstances in front of you right now. You process that information, you make a decision, and you go forward, and you do execute the plan. Whether it was a perfect answer or not, doesn't matter. Just move forward. Now the landscape changes, the data changes, the position of the spacecraft changes, and, and you reevaluate, and, and, and you just keep this iterating on this process. Much like I think how nowadays, and if you watch a football game, they always talk about halftime adjustments and whatnot. And it's the same kind of thing. You're, you're, you're tweaking the knobs as the game unfolds and, and making adjustments. Do you consider yourself to be a risk taker or a rule follower? Probably more rule following by nature, but I'm not averse to risk at all. In fact, it bugs me a little bit. Like, um, in other, we at NASA, our goal is to get to Mars, but we tend to engineer to very, very deep levels, which is our skill and our, it's what makes NASA great. But it also can hold us back from achieving a dream of Mars earlier. And so sometimes I, I, I think that organizations can suffer from paralysis by analysis and not actually do anything. And that kind of bugs me. So I'm a more tending towards taking risk, educated, like thought, thoughtful risk mitigated by things you can control, but just do it. I'm more of a just do it kind of person. Uh, but at the same token, I'm not going to break any rules that the organization has set out or, or that the, we call them flight rules. And you mentioned Mars, and that was something I was curious about. And obviously SpaceX, and there's a lot of publicity on what they're doing. And um, I just watched the National Geographic special on what they're doing and how they're trying to do it. Um, my dad sent me the video of what they're up to. And so I asked my dad, I said, hey, dad, I'm interviewing an astronaut. What, what do you want me to ask him? And he said, when? And I go, Oh, I'm interviewing him in like 30 minutes. And he goes, no, no, no. When are we going to get to Mars? Because uh, I think he wants to go. <laughs> so uh, so what, what are your thoughts on Mars? And, and I would love to just learn from you as far as uh, what that timeline looks like and, and how you're thinking about it. So we're building a, a giant rocket called SLS. It's not a fancy name or anything, but, uh, but the capsule that sits on top of it uh, is called the Orion capsule, much like the Apollo capsule sat on top of the Saturn V that went to, to the moon. There's Orion uh, on a test flight right behind me. Uh, that system will do lunar orbit, moon orbits around the moon in early, 20, early 2020s. There, there's kind of a one, one a year planned flight rate, um, all in an effort to make sure the system, the equipment is working, functional, and ready to go to Mars. We're kind of using the moon as a, a destination uh, and, and certain points near lunar orbit to, to sort all that stuff out. 
with the goal of getting to Mars. And I honestly think it's probably in the mid 2030s that you'll see a manned spacecraft go to Mars. Could take a little longer. I don't think it'll be shorter, but sooner than that. It just takes time. It's expensive. It spans multiple uh, political election cycles. It, every time you do that, and we're we're a government program, so we are subject to budgetary cycles of, of uh, Congress. And uh, so when you put all that together, what you have is schedule risk. Uh, the technical stuff, the smart engineers here at NASA will figure it all out, and we can answer the mail and all that. It's uh, it's just how how intense is our nation's desire to get to Mars, and I in the in the nature of competition, I think that China is will be one of the igniters of our nation's motivation to accelerate to do work faster towards Mars. You know, China has a really aggressive, robust space program, and they'll be on the moon, I'm sure, not too long from now. And uh, and and American people want to make sure they they care about us being a leader in, in technology and in space. And, uh, and we should we should lead the effort to get to Mars. Now that being said, I don't think it's going to be a U.S. only mission when we go to Mars. This capsule in Orion has four seats. You might see you'll see one American, maybe two. You'll see a European, Canadian, Japanese, Russian um, mix of other crews and that will be an interesting process how that all gets sorted out but nonetheless uh, it'll be an international cooperation effort to, to get to Mars and I'm really really excited about it whether your dad can join us um, it depends how big of a check he wants to write <laughs> well we'll talk about that off air uh, but you got the most animated during this conversation from my observation when you talked about that risk-taking and let's just go do it. Like there was an element that came alive in you. And so I'm wondering how important it is for you in your lifetime that that opportunity presents itself to, to get to Mars. Oh, where, where I could be the one going. Yeah. I would, I would absolutely love to go. I mean, I would strap onto the rocket today. And uh, hey, no, but we got we got a lunchtime meeting. No, I don't care about that. I'm going on. But uh, uh, realistically, will I still be an NASA astronaut 15 years from now? I doubt it. You know, there's no rules on when astronauts have to retire. We just have to be able to pass the annual flight physical. I'm 48 right now. 12 years, I'll be 60. We've had astronauts fly at 60 years old, but quite truthfully. Your prime astronauting years are kind of 38 to, to, to 50, 38 to 48 kind of time frame. So I'm, it'll be time for me to move on, be more of a management type person by the time we're putting people on Mars. And uh, would, I, would I love to go? Like I said, yes. Well, I'd be happy to see some of my younger colleagues go. Absolutely. I'll just be motivated that we as a nation are part of it. And I mentioned earlier, I've got two small kids uh, when we were talking before we started recording. And so I would love to just get your thoughts on uh, how you, let's just say tomorrow you could go to Mars, but there is a percentage, high percentage chance that you don't make it back. Uh, so I'm curious how you think about your job in relation to family and others uh, and, and how you make sense of all that. Yeah. 
That's a good question. Um, I just recently watched the movie First Man, which is about Neil Armstrong's more personal life, but at the end it culminated with the, the lunar shot. And you get a sense for that, that they as a family had to deal with those real emotions of, hey, Neil is at the dinner table with his family. He's leaving tomorrow to go to work, but it's not just the normal work. That work is to the moon, and we're not really sure if he's going to come home. Um, that's something that we talk about internal to our office. How do we de deal with family emotions and, and, and communicating that, I think. But my personal thoughts are individuals and families can take more stress, can take more risk when, they, when you feel like there's real significant value to it. In other words, going to Mars will be an accomplishment of all mankind. It's huge, it's a huge accomplishment. And to be part of that is such an honor. And to shy away, I have no hard feelings to anybody that would said, you know what, that'd be great but I'm not gonna take that risk. I'm gonna stay here with my family, you go. I'm not gonna be on the mission. That's all, that's a perfectly fine decision. For me, personally, I'm kind of more on the side of, this is an amazing adventure for all of mankind. I would love to be a part of it, my family. I, I'm asking you to buy in to this risk because I think it's, it's something that forever humans will be talking about. I think that's a beautiful place for us to wrap up. I'd be lying if I said that I didn't have about a thousand other questions to ask you, uh, but I know your time is important and valuable. So I just want to thank you for a number of things. First of all, giving me the time to chat. I want to thank Jeff Gum, who is a former podcast guest and a Navy SEAL who introduced the two of us. And I want to thank you obviously for your service to our country and then for the work that you're doing now that is uh, fearless and is uh, potentially a game changer and it's exciting. And um, so thank you for giving your time and your energy and your effort. Uh, and, and thank you for coming on the podcast as well. Absolutely. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. Chris, last thing, is there anything that you want to promote or give a megaphone to uh, in relation to the work that you're doing or where people can learn more about you? Uh, so my next mission, I'll, I, I, I look into launch in the latter part of 2019. My specific job is to do some really complicated spacewalks to repair uh, a, a space uh, alpha magnetic spectrometer. Anyways, uh, complicated spacewalks, I'm really looking forward to it. Follow along on the NASA webpage. I personally have an Instagram account, but I don't really post anything earth shattering on, on there. Earth shattering, no pun intended. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, just it, for the. I'm just happy to be with you and, and share a little bit about this. You can tell I'm excited about the work and, and glad to be here. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. I would, and as a group, we would do this week. We had a, we called it sand table. You build like a mini mock-up of your area and, and you verbalize uh, where you're going to be, helicopter lands here, stick one comes off, I go here, and in your mind you're picturing, okay, I should round this corner, I'm going to see the house in front of me, or whatever the case is. Um, when we're doing a spacewalk, before every spacewalk, we analyze the procedures and we rehearse it in the pool, hopefully, if we have time. Oh, um, and then the days 
before it will sit inside the space station and I'll just sit there all by myself in my uh, crew quarters, close my eyes and picture the handrails that I'm going to grab. Okay, now I'm going to approach the quick piece of equipment. There should be bolts here and electrical cables here. Uh, watch out because in training I always grab the wrong one or they three things look the same, make sure it's the right one. You know, all of those little details go over and over and over and mentally picture it. 